Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak, and today I'm speaking to Ryan Milner, the author of The World Made Meme, Public Conversations and Participatory Media. Ryan Milner is Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication at the College of Charleston. Ryan Milner, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Oh, absolutely. I'm totally happy to be here. So now, when did you first get interested in the question of internet memes? Way back in late 2010 was the first time as a scholar I started thinking through the implications of internet memes. Of course, I had been kind of an internet culture junkie for a long time before that. I spent my high school years playing video games, and that led to time on internet forums, which led me to connect to a lot of places where memes were happening in kind of the early to mid-2000s. And I kept that up through grad school, just kind of as a place to converse and share and see what other people were thinking and saying during my free time. And when I was trying to figure out what on earth I would write an entire dissertation about, I took some advice from my advisor, uh, Nancy Bame, who wrote her dissertation on soap opera fans online. And she said that the reason she picked that topic was because she was spending so much time online reading about soap operas and participating in soap opera forums that she had to double up or she wouldn't get the dissertation done. And I said that, you know, that's not a bad piece of advice. And I knew that I was already kind of invested in the conversations and the creativity and the collectives and communities. And I already had a little bit of that insider cultural knowledge. And so the scholarly interest really kind of came out of a personal kind of cultural interest Especially as I realized that a lot of what I was doing in my free time, a lot of the conversations I was seeing, a lot of the contributions and remix and play, I started realizing that it was important as play and kind of beyond play. And so I think it was a nice kind of congruence between what I'm interested in as a scholar and what I was spending my free time kind of messing around with. And so they came together in late 2010 when I started this research project. You know, I st- while I was reading this, I started wondering about a generational gap within this because I'm in my late 40s and I knew kind of about internet memes. I would see them on some of the websites I gathered. I didn't have a sense until I read this book about how far back it goes and about how powerful it was. But, you know, I kind of do it a little bit with friends where I'll maybe send a picture and put a caption underneath it, but not officially like one would see where an internet meme where somebody took a picture and then put it through a software thing to, to create a thing. In the book, you mentioned when you're talking to people early about this, that you also kind of ran a generation gap where people kind of knew what you were talking about, but like me, maybe didn't have enough of a background. So is there a bit of a generation gap between how people see memes or even how people understand what memes are? I think absolutely. So the way that I hear this broken down a lot, and I don't know, you can take these these categories at face value and take them or leave them, but people will talk about really esoteric, really subcultural internet cultures of the late 1990s, the early 1990s into the early and late 1980s. So we're talking Usenet forums, we're talking really niche interest groups because you had to have a lot of both technological literacy and financial means to be connected to these places of recreation and conversation. And so it was a really small pocket of conversation, a really small number of participants happening there. And it's in that group that the term meme 
first starts bubbling up. And so you've got people in the 90s starting to talk about their jokes and phrases and ideas that they share, uh, referring to them as, as memes. So the first online connection between Richard Dawkins' ideas of cultural transmission, which is where the term meme comes from, and internet participation that I found was in 1994 in a Wired article where the author, Mike Godwin, talks about Nazi comparisons. Uh, so people on forums inevitably comparing people they're fighting with as uh, Nazis or comparing them to Nazis. He calls that a meme in the 90s. And so it's really tied to Dawkins. It's about the transmission of a cultural trope or motif or idea in a way very similar to how Dawkins in The Selfish Gene in 1976 is talking about the transmission of cultural ideas. So really small, really tied to Dawkins, some seeds of what comes a decade later or so, but in the intervening decade, uh, by about the time that people my age and people like me are starting to spend their teenage years online, the term is kind of ballooned out to where now it's still relatively niche, relatively esoteric, relatively subcultural, uh, but it refers to a broader range of participation. It refers to lots of different visual remix or audio remix, um, refers to in-jokes still, but it takes on a more kind of playful connotation. And it's around this time that more and more people start investing in sites like 4chan, Something Awful, Reddit, eventually out to Tumblr and Twitter. And so you've got this kind of liminal period there in the mid-aughts, up until I'd say maybe around 2011, 2012, where the term and this kind of play blows up into massive national interests, where tools allow for easier remix, where more people are kind of having more buzzing conversations on sites like Twitter and places like Facebook. And so you can break it up into those kind of three loose era. So it goes from really, really small to kind of small to massive. And throughout that time, the term gets used with kind of increasing ubiquity. And so that might account for some of the differences between the ways that people think about the idea of an internet meme. If you're coming from way back, you may not have heard that term as much or be thinking about it in this really kind of Richard Dawkins cultural transmission sense. If you're coming from when I came up in the early to mid-2000s, it's subcultural jokes, it's funny captioned pictures, it's esoteric, it's tied to trolling and antagonism and ambivalent laughter. And more recently, however, it's kind of become this bigger term that ties back to its roots. It's become less subcultural and it's about cultural transmission in an altered way, but a, a bigger way too. Um, so the first chapter, you look at what you call the five logics of internet memes, uh, sort of an animatizing of what's going on within an internet meme itself. Could you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about these five logics? Absolutely. So throughout the book, I kind of lean on these five different features that's a lot of, if not all, memes share. And none of them are new to internet memes, but the technologies and the social practices that give us internet memes really intertwine these five logics in pretty powerful ways. And I argue that this is how you get our contemporary media environment with all this buzzing, remix, sharing, play, reappropriation, those kind of things. 
So the five logics are multimodality, reappropriation, resonance, collectivism, and spread. And so multimodality is the expression of communication commentary through diverse modes of communication. And so theoretically, you can break it down like this. You've got different communication media. So the internet is a medium. Television is a medium. Newspapers are a medium. But different media carry different modes of communication. So newspapers can carry text and they can carry image. Televisions can carry text and image. They can also carry audio and video. The internet can carry text, image, audio, video, hypertext, can carry GIFs, it can carry all of these at once through how information is digitized. And so when people converse online, when they comment online, they've got all these different modes of communication at their disposal, which is why you see the same jokes and same commentary pop up in Twitter hashtags and YouTube videos and captioned photos and auto-tuned remixes. All of those different modes of communication are serving conversational ends online because they're all kind of equally accessible for the most part. You also have reappropriation, which is the remix and recombination of existing cultural materials. So taking from one source, twisting it, altering it, pulling out a part, adding in a new part, and making something new. So obviously this isn't a new practice. You've got people doing mashup work or remix work or people sampling in hip-hop for a really long time. But with the digital tools of the internet, you've got this easy ability to reappropriate, to move from one context to the other. And this can be, again, visual, like doing Photoshop work. This can be textual, like taking a hashtag and turning it into something different. But when something becomes a meme, it's all about people taking from one context and moving it into another, taking from the broader understanding and moving it into a specific situation. And so that's fundamental to making a meme a meme. You've got resonance, which is the manifestation of strong personal affinities. So people create, circulate, and transform. They spread and share what connects with them, what clicks with them, what inspires something in them. This can be something that makes them laugh. This can be something that makes them angry, something that makes them feel sentimental, something they think that people need to know. It, a given video or image or hashtag can resonate in all kinds of ways, but to create a meme, you need lots of people making something their own, and the things that people make their own are what resonates to them. So it's this individual manifestation of this individual affinity that helps these massive memes spread because it's one person, one person, one person making a decision to share something. And that process is also social, and that's the collectivism logic there, the social creation and transformation because to get to the point of something being mimetic or being a meme or going viral, which is a related idea, then all of those individual decisions, those individual strands have to thread together into this broader tapestry. And so people create, circulate, and transform aware of other people, playing with other people's jokes, making a point to other social groups. And it's that buzzing collectivism that turns individual sharing, individual creation into the creativity that we see on Twitter or on Reddit or on 
4chan or Tumblr or across any of these sites. And then the last, the the biggest dimension is spread, circulation through mass networks. And so we have a system with the internet that allows individuals to put their expressions out there, to put their ideas out there. It allows other people to decide to further things along or decide to alter things. And so you need that spread moving through different networks of participation, different people's decisions in order to get something to work and act mimetically. It doesn't necessarily have to be viral. A lot of times people will talk about memes and viral content as if they are synonyms. Virality is a specific kind of spread. It's a kind of spread that is this really quick flurry of interest that then kind of dies off as people become less interested over time. Uh, and that's one way that memes can spread. But memes can also spread kind of more slow, kind of more steady as different people remix and play and add their own spin over months or years even. And so there's different ways that spread happens, but spread is essential in different people adding their contributions to different conversations and that happening on a big, big scale. So is it fair to say, I mean, when we talk about that kind of that second series of uh, where memes develop, and you mentioned in that last answer, like 4chan and Reddit and some of the other websites that have had a reputation in the past for being a bit of trolling websites and perhaps being a bit univocal and putting out a voice of I'll say this white male, white white male technocrats. Is it mm. fair to say that perhaps over time, as memes have developed, that perhaps they become a little more multivocal? That isn't necessarily privileging that white male thing. That perhaps it was done, say, in the early 2010s when you're getting a lot of these things off of some of the more controversial websites on the on the internet. Well, I think you're absolutely charting it 100 percent right there. Where if you look at the lineage of this kind of expression and commentary and play. It comes from that place, that subcultural internet culture place, those uh, days of early netizens, as, uh, as, uh, as Godwin in his Wired piece in 94 refers to people on forums arguing with each other. And it was a specific type of person that had the literacy technologically and the leisure time and the leisure income in order to be a member of a mediated subculture or a set of mediated collectives. And so there was ideologies embedded in those similarities. You're right. They tended to be white. They tended to be male. They tended to skew a little more libertarian. Uh, they had a set of demographics that became associated with the conversations. Now, that's not to say that everyone on the early internet had those demographic characteristics or those beliefs, but it was normal enough that it became the kind of ideological normal for the conversations and the jokes and the expressions. And so embedded in a lot of early kind of subcultural mimetic play or early trolling was this very situated ideology and that came across in jokes and that came across in the targets that people trolled or came across in the perspectives that were embedded in what people shared. And that was a kind of gatekept set of ideologies in that way. But what's happened in the intervening years, as you rightly point out, is the, the systems of participation are 
a little more open now. The problem obviously is not 100% solved. Those issues of literacy and leisure time and income still matter greatly. But as the conversations spiral out from these more niche sites onto broader collectives, vast sites um, like Twitter, for instance, then you've got more back and forth. You've got different perspectives. So you see that old guard ideology represented a whole lot on Twitter, and it's a big problem in a lot of ways. But then you also see people pushing back against it, and you see clash, and you see conversation. And then you have sites that play with remix, that play with memes, that share funny photos, that share... Uh, funny videos that have different demographics. So Tumblr, for instance, is kind of known to have demographics that skew a little more progressive, that tend to represent uh, uh, female perspectives and tend to represent feminist perspectives a little more than you saw on like 4chan or Reddit. You've got examples of play on sites like the unfortunately just discontinued Vine, which were places of play and remix that a lot of uh, African-Americans flock to. And so these logics that I outlined that, that underscore memes, they developed in these places that were this kind of white male, technocratic, libertarian kind of environment, but they work just as well in places that aren't like that and in conversations that aren't dictated by those ideologies. And so now you have different people with different perspectives using the same logics to have these conversations, which is why you get the back and forth and people arguing on hashtags and people trying to take terms and reappropriate them, trying to use hashtags to make different points. Uh, you see people like we see with uh, going on with the election right now, uh, take terms like deplorables, nasty women, and pull them into their perspectives conversation. So you get a lot of clash and a lot of back and forth right now, which is, I think, evidence that more people are using these modes of communication pretty effectively. Because we're recording this to the day before the U.S. presidential election. I was going to ask you, you know, it's funny hearing that answer. One of the things that I was seeing off of the websites and everything that I was looking at, I would think one of the larger visual memes or perhaps more pronounced visual memes that's come through this election cycle has been Pepe the Frog. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been other sites where people have tried to reappropriate Kermit the Frog as as a, uh, as, a as a counter to Pepe the Frog. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit? I mean, is that an example of what you're talking about? I say battling memes because uh, really up until this election, I had no idea who Pepe the Frog was. And so did, did you first find out about Pepe the Frog because of his uh, white nationalist trappings and the ADL putting him on the watch list and those kind of things? Is that how you came to know Pepe the Frog? Yes, that, I, I, I had no I had no uh, relationship with Pepe the Frog until it was point. I mean, I really wasn't following the Republican nominee social media much anyway. But other things I was then watching saying that – I like say press, but antithetical to his position, started pointing out, well, who is this? Why do we keep seeing this Pepe the Frog? And that's where, yes, all of a sudden the long and checkered history of Pepe the Frog started to come out. So Pepe the Frog is a stellar example of the back and forth that can come around mimetic play and the ideologies that are embedded within these kind of whimsical, sometimes farcical, sometimes not taken very seriously texts. So Pepe the Frog goes way back before his days being a white nationalist symbol to sites like 4chan, sites like Tumblr. Uh, it was originally taken from a 
a an online comic, a piece of online uh, artistic commentary, and people on those sites started using Pepe to represent lots of different emotions and expressions. And it became a pretty prevalent symbol and a pretty prevalent in-joke on sites like 4chan and Tumblr, which is really interesting because they tend to have different ideological poles over the last few years. And what happened was within the last few months, very likely a few people on a few sites of what's called alt-right participation. So you're kind of extreme right-wing, white nationalists, hipster Donald Trump supporters who you don't know if they're playing or they're not, and that's part of their whole game and their whole joke, uh, decided that they were going to reappropriate Pepe and tarnish the image and get journalists to freak out about Pepe and were going to attach this kind of solid reputation to this, until then, politically neutral character. Um, and so different people started photoshopping and inserting Pepe into these these xenophobic white nationalist extreme right-wing messages to create this connotation and likely at least for a few people pretty intentionally to try to drum up moral panic and hysteria uh, as kind of a bait for people to latch onto and freak out and then for other people to be able to roll their eyes and say oh you're really worried about a frog and so it became this kind of cycle of amplification and in that way Pepe is a victim of what was probably, at least for some people, a pretty intentional campaign to to sully the image of this collective in-joke. All that being said, though, and this is a point that a co-author of mine, Whitney Phillips, and I uh, have made a time or two, at the end of the day, that doesn't negate those associations. And so as this meme, this symbol has come to stand for more and more xenophobia, hatred, white nationalism, then unfortunately that's what resonates. And that's why I didn't really, really roll my eyes too much when I saw that the ADL had put the image on a put the image on a list of hate symbols. Because at the end of the day, all that a symbol means is what people agree it means. Um, and so whether that symbol is the Nazi swastika or the southern U.S. Confederate battle flag, symbols inherently don't mean anything. They mean what is socially inscribed upon them. And so the same thing with this meme here. And so even if it started out as a joke, even if it started out kind of ironically, even if it started out as bait, at the end of the day, if it's connected to hate, it's hate. Until a time when those connotations fall away, then you have to acknowledge the reality of what symbols carry to the people who read them. And so it's a really complicated story. And so on the one hand, it's, it's yeah, we get it. You were trying to mess with us. But on the other hand, I'm not laughing. And I know that you were trying to make a joke and you were trying to do something kind of ironic and get my goat here, but I don't think it's that funny. And so it becomes this kind of push and fold between wanting to not give too much power to what was clearly an attempt to kind of drum up moral panic, but also acknowledging that symbols end up mattering and how people understand them and accepting uh, the vast, uh, accepting how vast numbers of people end up reading a symbol matters. 
Ryan Milner, the author of The World Made Meme, Public Conversations and Participatory Media. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Absolutely. I had a great time, and I hope that made some sense. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.